millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrit Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid. Subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired. Keep evolving. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. And it is such a treat to be here today. We have with us Dr. Ronald Siegel. Ron, how are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is such a pleasure to have you here. For those tuning into Ron for the first time, he is Professor of Psychology at Harvard Medical School, Assistant Professor, where he has taught for 
multiple decades, over 35 years. And he's a long-term student of mindfulness meditation. He serves on the board of directors in the faculty of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. He's written some really incredible books. Um, the yeah, mindfulness and the, its ability to heal. Um, the recent book is The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. Now, I love the title of this book, and I wanted to really dive deeper into this space, if that was okay, Ron, today. What prompted you to write a book on ordinariness? <laughs> because it doesn't seem to be the most, looking at the books that you've written um, on mindfulness, I think there's a real draw card around mindfulness, especially in today's society, the way we're sort of, you know, Stephen Kotler, one of the other guests I've had, you know, research and researching flow talks about there's this 20% anxiety sort of baked into the social collective that we currently navigate. Um, and so mindfulness is this real, presents itself as a real antidote. And so following the thread of your, your, your past books and then feeling into ordinariness, like this, this doesn't seem to be kind of what people are seeking out at the moment. Yeah, no, no. When I, when I was searching for a, uh, a title, I was um, doing little focus groups with my friends and colleagues. And one of them wrote back when, when this title was, uh, was put forth and said, nobody would buy a book about being ordinary. Everybody wants to be special. Which yeah. I think is How do you become playing. a New York Times bestseller? <laughs> exactly. Well, that may not be the fate of the book, but rather it may be useful to people instead. Mm. And, uh, Mm, the the inspiration you. actually came was was very personal. Um, there I was already in my sixties, having spent some four decades with serious investigation of mindfulness practices, personally as well as professionally, and the same number of decades working with clients or patients uh, professionally, having been, of course, in my own therapy as part of my training. And you would think that at the end of all that, I would a have gotten what are really the this supposed fruits of meditation practices, certainly mm. in the Buddhist traditions from which many mindfulness practices uh, derive, the idea is to not be so self-preoccupied, is to not be you know, so concerned with ego, with how you look to yourself and to others. And certainly in Western psychology, we see as the goal, you would imagine one would have a stable, coherent sense of self or something called positive self-esteem. And being honest with myself, neither had occurred. You know, that my right. sense of myself was mm. still fluctuating. I mean, not fluctuating as badly as it does for some people who are oh, stopped that's... in their tracks by it. But, you know, if, if I were to say what the general tenor was, it was either struggling to avoid feeling not good enough in some way, making sure mm. that I keep up, keep accomplishing things, checking out how I'm doing compared to my peers, or being kind of stressed out, involved in all sorts of productive activities that were designed in part to make me feel good about myself, to make me feel, yeah, I'm a successful human being. And that, that, that was occurring in so many realms. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I look at my clinical practice and I realize everybody that I was working with, one dimension of their suffering was either feeling not good enough or being stressed out, trying to stay on top of the heap in some way. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. How come How come this is persisting? And, you know, one hypothesis was, well, I'm just a loser. You know, here I am. You know, I, <laughs> you know, I had trouble with, you know. Professor uh, at Harvard uh, written multiple books. <laughs> I know, but, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's, that's one of the thing. fascinating yeah, things that we find. It doesn't matter where you are on any continuum that you might invent. Yeah. We, 
we, we all, the, what happens is we suffer from something, um, I made up a name for it, uh, narcissistic recalibration. Mm. There was a time, I don't know if you have this in Australia, where, you know, as a toddler, I figured out how to put multicolored rings, kind of like donuts, on a pole in the right order so that they look like a cone or a Christmas tree. Do you I was have doing that, that just last night. My son has one of those. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So so it, it exists and it still exists in Australia. And right when your son got it, so it looked like the cone, there's probably a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, we get super excited. And, and hey, daddy, look, right? Yeah. And that did once float all of our boats. However, as time goes on, we tend to recalibrate and we tend to actually keep raising our standards. So interesting. I often train psychotherapists. It's one of one of my um, uh, one of my professional uh, roles. And mm. uh, sometimes I'll be talking about this this topic with a, a you know a significant group of psychotherapists, and I'll say, all of you earn this advanced degree, right? And there was a time when you earned that degree where when you finally graduated, you know, you probably felt pretty good about yourself. And everybody says, yeah, absolutely. And I say, now who woke up this morning feeling, you know, I really feel proud and fulfilled because I have my advanced degree. And the whole group, exactly as you're starting, starts mm. to laugh, right? <laughs> Except sometimes there's one new minted psychotherapist who raises their hand and says, why is everybody laughing? Right? <laughs> because they're, they're still watching the the glow, they haven't recalibrated yet. Because mm. what happens is we move through life, no matter what we're doing, we keep changing our peer group, right? right? We keep, and then we start comparing ourselves to others. So, you know, you could take an Olympic gold medalist, right? And, you know, if they don't win the gold, they feel pretty inadequate. Well, for somebody else, uh, I shouldn't say a gold medalist who doesn't win the gold, but somebody competing doesn't win the gold, they feel inadequate. Whereas any other athlete in the whole world would think, oh my That's gosh, right. to be able to compete in the Olympics, what I wouldn't do for that. Yeah. And then there's another problem. In addition to this recalibration, the way that our, our measuring stick keeps changing mm. is everything changes. What goes up goes down. So the person who does actually win the gold what are the chances mm. of winning it in four years or in eight years? So it was really noticing that, oh my gosh, I'm still caught in this. Everybody I'm working with is caught in this. I see it on the world stage. What's up with this? And even more importantly, what might be we be able to do about it? I'd love to tune into what might we be able to do about it. But just before <laughs> we go all the way in there, I'd love to sort of ask a little bit around what your thoughts on the bedrock of what has brought this to us as human beings might be. Is it somewhat that our evolution has dictated this and built it into kind of our way of being, this idea of comparison, um, this, yeah, this consistent need to... I guess, feel good about myself relative to my, my peers and my cohort? Um, or is it something that is a bit more influenced by society? Is it the way that this capitalistic structure is structured around me that I sort of, well, it doesn't have to just be capitalism. It, yeah, it could be any other culture as well. You sort of see it manifest where there's these social hierarchies and where we're trying to basically put one hand on, you know, climb on, on one from one rung to the other. And sometimes we're sort of stepping on heads as we're going up. We don't realize we're doing that um, yeah, until we tune in. 
So yeah, is it is it a is it a social thing or is it like a biological like? I I think it's a perfect storm of the social and biological coming together. Right. Um, you know, on the biological end, uh, this is baked into social species. They all organize themselves into hierarchies. Um, the, mm. You know, if you've ever you know, had the privilege of going on a so-called safari in Africa, which yeah. means riding around in a Jeep with a naturalist, mm. uh, the the observations become somewhat repetitive. In species after species, we see here's a dominant male mm. surrounded by a literal harem of mm. sexually or reproductively promising females. Mm -hmm. And then over in the next field, there's another bunch of guys, usually a bit younger, doing some kind of competitive horseplay, the species-specific equivalent of playing, you call it football or soccer in Australia, or basketball, whatever. But like honing their skills, right, yeah. to try to become dominant. And we look at other species like birds, pecking mm. orders we use that phrase in english right yeah. because it represents something there are even species of crickets that when you put them in a box inside of a few seconds they've organized themselves into dominance hierarchies and little kids kids as as young as age four if mm. you put three of them in a group they will organize themselves into what are called social psychologists love to study this stuff transitive dominance hierarchies. Transitive is this idea of transitivity. It's, yeah, it's what you learned if you took high school algebra, that if A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, then A is bigger than C. Yeah. So if Julio is able to dominate or lord over or boss around uh, Juanita, and Juanita is able to do that to John, John knows he's got to give deference to Julio, right? Yeah. We, they, and kids figure that out inside of a few minutes of just yeah. playing with each other at age four. So indeed, that part of the equation is very, very strongly um, baked in. And it makes sense if we look at our evolutionary history. You know, the way that modern biologists understand this is anything that would provide for the survival of an individual and the successful reproduction of an individual, and then the passing on of those genes to subsequent generations, that's what's going to get selected for. Anything that doesn't help with that, well, in the random play of mutations and stuff, that's going to fall away. It's not going to be part of how, in this case, our brains evolved. So we might imagine that there were, you know, happy hominids four million years ago hanging around who didn't have these comparative concerns. Yeah, the kumbaya. Is... Yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Holding hands, singing kumbaya, uh, and, and, you know, just, just cooperating. And we do have an instinct for cooperation, but by and large, those who didn't compete in this way, <clears throat> they didn't get to reproduce as much. And as a result, mm. their genes kind of filtered out of our gene pool. And what got reinforced over and over and over was this preoccupation. And what happens in humans is we're not necessarily physically beating our chests mm. and pounding each other over the head, although there are circumstances <laughs> in which we do that too. But we're not necessarily doing that but we're having these fluctuating self-esteem experiences. Mm. We're having these moments when we're with other people where we're feeling, hey, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I'm kind of smart or, hey, I'm attractive or I'm funny or people like me or I'm kind or mm. I'm spiritually advanced. We can do this with anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> and you know, one, and, no one. <laughs> and it's you know compared to other people and other moments where we're feeling exactly the opposite, where mm. we're feeling somehow not good enough. Oh, I'm not the kind of person I want to be. Gosh, I'm not so talented. I'm not so spiritually advanced. I'm a mess. I'm you know I'm not a good friend. And it's these constantly fluctuating evaluations that actually draw their juice in part from the fact that we're simply deeply wired as mammals, social mm. mammals, to be concerned with comparisons. And because we're sophisticated, these comparisons are, you know, can be very subtle and, and symbolic and, and take on all sorts of dimensions. But you also know, mentioned something super important, which is that because this biology is so strong, we've organized societies based on it. Mm. So virtually every human society is deeply hierarchical. And and in fact, when we look at the attempts to not be hierarchical, let's take socialist societies around the globe. And I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not going to argue, you know, have a left-right argument here. <laughs> although I I have my biases, but I I don't think they're they're important to the argument. Mm. You know, we've certainly seen that ostensibly socialist states are organized with well party members are certainly higher in the hierarchy than mm. the non-party members, and you know other kinds of hierarchies uh, start to develop. So. It happens in human societies. And then this, which has happened throughout history, mm -hmm. has gotten an enormous steroid boost in just the last few years with social media. Yeah. Because now we have the ability all day long to compare ourselves to others. I don't yeah. know about you, but I don't see a lot of social media feeds. I mean, I don't actually see a lot of social media feeds, period. Yeah. But from what I know, not that many people post say, woke up this morning, had the runs again. I'm afraid of <laughs> my bad eggs. performance. <laughs> bad performance review, and my girlfriend or boyfriend are going to leave me. No, it's like here I am at a fantastic place, doing fantastic things with beautiful people, and you're not included. So mm. you know, and and it was Mark Zuckerberg, you know, who founded Facebook. It was his absolute genius to realize that people will stay glued to your platform if you let them get likes. If you mm -hmm. offer the opportunity for them to get followers, if you if you give the people this this potential, and you know um, uh, psychologists who wire people up, pseudo human connection, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And they put people in scanners, and every time they get a like, the nucleus accumbens, the part of the brain that's in the reward center, it goes crazy, it lights up. So we get super addicted to it for, by our hierarchical cultural structures, mm -hmm. and now amplified by by social media so the answer to your question is yeah both and and this is one of the reasons it's it's we find this happening so strongly in in almost all of us and so at the risk of picking a low-hanging fruit there was that partially some of the impetus to write this book now oh absolutely absolutely that uh, that it's not getting better it's getting worse in yeah. fact there's I'll just give you a brief research piece. Um, there's an instrument that's used by social psychologists called the uh, narcissistic personality inventory. Mm -hmm. And it asks people, usually uh, kids entering uh, university, uh, to just say, which of these two statements is more true? And the statements will be something like, I just want to be a reasonably happy person versus I want to amount to something in the world. <laughs> or my favorite, my favorite choice that they give them is if I ran the world, it would be a better place. <laughs> Surely it would be that. No. <laughs> uh, 
person, the thought of running the world scares the hell out of me, right? And, and, you know, and they've been tracking like kids' response to this, yeah. and they just get more and more like, I got to be an internet influencer. I got to, mm. you know, start a, uh, you know, a, a dot com company by the time I'm 30. Yeah, no, this is amping up tremendously. And yeah, it was one of the inspirations. Yeah, and the pressure around all of that. So one of the things that tuning into your work has been <clears throat> somewhat revolutionary for me in a very subtle way was for a while there, I was uh, demonizing narcissism um, as a thing that just, you know, I have definitely, you know, had narcissistic tendencies in the past. And then, you know, we talk about narcissistic recalibration and maybe this is not the, you know, exact sort of, ideologies that you embody around narcissistic recalibration but i found over time especially through greater and greater levels of self-awareness my relationship with my obsession with self shifted um and so you know it's healed in a, in a great deal but i've digressed somewhat to the point that i was trying to make which was this conversation around narcissistic supply um which i found a really interesting um concept to discuss because it basically alludes to and I probably shouldn't put words in your mouth, but that there is some amount of narcissism that is healthy for our existence and our individual expression, yet left unchecked, there are problems. Can you describe a little bit around what I'm well, talking I, about? I, I, it's an, you're raising an excellent question and uh, because it really tunes us into what's a very subtle matter. Hmm. We definitely know that having what we would think of as low self-esteem yeah. isn't very helpful. In other words, thinking everybody else is better than me. I'm no good. Nobody's interested in me. The, mm. you know, the proverbial um, Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> if you will. You know, clearly that's not, yeah. that's not a great stance to have in, yeah. in life. And oh gosh, so many people are struggling with that, you know, really feel like less than most mm. of the time. And that is deeply painful having a realistic sense of our abilities mm. sure is helpful. Like, right. If I know, mm, yeah, no, I'm a psychologist. I can reasonably work with this or that, you know, client or patient, but no, my understanding of anatomy is such that I should not be given a scalpel to be a brain surgeon. That is definitely <laughs> not something I know about, you know, I can't a healthy level of self-awareness. <laughs> right? so, so, you know, now, is that narcissism to feel like I have certain competencies or is it mm. simply awareness of that's this is where skills lie, this is where skills don't lie? Mm. I would actually suggest, and, and this is a little bit countercultural, more than a little countercultural, mm. that no, we don't actually need any narcissism in the sense of we don't actually need to think that we're better than others in any realm. Mm -hmm. What we do need is a profound sense of self-acceptance and self-compassion. We do need to sense that we are fundamentally lovable. We fundamentally have value in the world and, um, and uh, we are connected to others. But all those things can happen without any self-evaluation because this is about feeling acceptance, feeling connection, feeling engagement that's not based on the mythology that one person can be better or worse than another fundamentally. Yes, one may have skills where another doesn't have skills. One's taller, one's shorter. That's all obvious and sometimes quite necessary. You want the taller person to reach to the top shelf, right? Not the shorter person. They're yeah. going to get 
they're going to be able to do it. So practically speaking, really important. But in terms of how it feels, I'm not sure we need narcissistic supplies. That may be a an idea baked into Western psychology that comes from the fact that Western psychology never really examined very deeply, not all of it, but mainstream Western psychology never really deeply examined this whole idea of how is self-constructed and what elements of that are basically illusory. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really interesting to feel into the depth of acceptance that is required um, to sort of let go of that level of self. In the way you've, or the way I'm picking off the response that you've just given and taking off from there, it feels like this is a very spiritual sort of ordinariness that you're sort of working your way towards because there is a, I don't want to say transcendence of the ego, but uh, a separate, not even a separation from self. It's almost like a sinking into a self that isn't linking into that illusory sense of self um, to sort of just accept on this level of, okay, here I am and this is um, what I'm about and this is where I'm at. This is me here now in many ways. Am I landing in the right place? I I think you're landing very much in, uh, I don't know if it's right, we may both be deluded. (laughs) You're landing in the same. Or the places that you're pointing to. (laughs) You you are landing in the way that, you know, describing well, my understanding, the best best that I have. And and I don't want to set this, you know, in describing this, Mm. you know, this is, this is describing um, a light, if you will, that we might want to orient toward. Once again, I yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I I don't experience in my own life a great number of more than moments mm-hmm. in which this kind of comparative judgment doesn't arise. Mm-hmm. I don't see it in the lives of other people. The 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 forces we're just hardwired for it. it you know, in the same way, mm-hmm. I, I like this as an analogy. Sometimes. Um, Virtually every culture that I've ever uh, had the privilege of um, of touching on or, or traveling to has some kind of delicacy, which is basically fatty and sweet, right? The equivalent yes. of the American donut, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I think there's a reason for that because in historical long back, long ago times, you know, fat and sugar signaled uh, calories and we you know getting calories was like the main thing that mm-hmm. organisms needed and so we evolved to like that now what most people in the developed world learn is hmm just going with that instinct doesn't work out well in the long yeah. run right you know we don't feel good well i, mm-hmm. I mean I'm, I'm not against eating donuts but we don't feel good if we make that the mainstay of our diet you know yeah. it doesn't work well for us so in the same way these instincts towards social comparison, trying to feel good about ourselves, they're not going away the same way my love of donuts isn't going away. Hmm. But if I put most of my energies into, okay, so it's as though I were guiding my nutritional life and thinking, how can I set it up so I have nonstop donuts? That's kind of what we do about our sense of self. How can Hmm. I make it so I'm a winner? How can I make it so that people always like me? How can I make it so that I oh, I feel successful all the time? In fact, we have a mythology, a crazy mythology, at least in American culture. You tell me if this is an Australian culture that only losers are insecure about self-esteem. 
only losers <laughs> have these fluctuations in, you know, in feeling. In fact, we recently had a president yeah. who, who would state that all the time, you know, look, mm. look, he choked. He looked, he looked nervous there. He's, he's an inferior lower ranking primate, you know, I didn't quite use that language, but that was to that the effect was, of, yep. you know, that was what was implied. So, um, so we're all, I think we're all going to, I'm expecting this to be a lifelong struggle for me. Mm. And by pointing my energies in a certain direction, I can make it so I'm not doubling down on this instinct. I'm not reinforcing it, but rather I'm cultivating some other instincts and other ways of being in the world that aren't subject to the same shortfalls, that aren't in, in necessarily limited supply, where it's not like I win and you lose, and and that are actually more... Uh, more sustainable and feel more deeply meaningful. And absolutely, they lie in a they lie in a spiritual direction. They lie in a direction of feeling connected to other people, life, the planet, connected to things outside of ourselves, and less preoccupied with narratives about ourselves and how I look and how I seem and what everybody's thinking about me. I have a, thank you so much for sharing that. I have a very um, affinity for the response that I feel I'm going to get from this space already because I'm exposed to your work. But for me, a lot of um, the question that I want to ask is for the listener and the audience and myself to tune into what does that look like in your own life, um, the sort of orientation and what you're, the sense of what you're cultivating part of me knows that a deep sense of service is uh, embedded in there. Um, but please don't let me pre-frame uh, it, <laughs> which I've accidentally already done. But yeah, please tell me, um, what does that look like for yourself? You know, it's a, uh, uh, it's a daily practice. I'll, mm. I'll give you a real life example of something yes, that please. happened recently. Okay. So I've been in a, um, a kind of uh mentor role in a program that's uh, training clinicians in uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Yeah. And uh, in any event, um, working with this group, um, I missed some things early on. In other words, some people shared some vulnerabilities and I didn't pick up on it. And in fact, I had a somewhat different expectation of my role than did some mm. of the members. So I kind of got into my little bit professorial role that I'm familiar with and I, I know how to do. And I wasn't really connecting, but I didn't really know why. And I didn't have the, the wisdom at that moment to say something's not really connecting. Let's mm. let, let's understand this. And I a little bit later, you know, over the course of our, our work together, I real, you know, some people spoke up. And, right. you know, it was painful to here I'm a psychologist, I'm a teacher, you know, you'd think I'd be able to communicate with people and create an atmosphere that felt safe. That's not what was happening. It was feeling unsafe to, mm. to several people. And you know, that was heartbreaking. Now, how am I going to respond to that? There, There is a part of me that responded with, well, there are reasons why I did what I did. Um, this is the, the justification that I had. Yeah. You know, I didn't know about this or that. You never spoke up. How was I to know? You know, the sort of self-defense, mm. you know, constructing a narrative so that Ron doesn't have to feel he failed at this. Mm. Right? And and that's, that's along the self-esteem dimension, that kind of thing. And then there's the possibility of saying, 
what if that didn't matter? What if this really wasn't about whether you're a good group leader or not, whether you're successful or not, whether people like you or not? What if this were really about what do these people need right now? How can you best serve them? And to do that meant to just really try to listen, really try to hear them and share, not to make it be too much about me, but share how heartbreaking it is to me to have blown it in this way. And interestingly, it's a very good group of people. You know, I think that mattered. You know, that started to shift the whole dynamic, mm. right? They started saying, oh, you know, he's not some jerk professor from Harvard. He's a human being who didn't, who missed it, right? Mm. I am a human being who missed it. That's a little bit, I'm I'm sharing this with you just because it just happened a couple of days yeah, ago. Yeah, no, it's you know? perfect. It's you know, That's really the kind helpful. of real world example of, of what this, what this feels like. And then it becomes a whole doorway into understanding things like, okay, how is it that, you know, that, that I got hooked on, you know, being sort of, you know, intellectually skilled as mm. a way to feel okay in the world. And mm. you know, for me, it doesn't take deep introspection. It's like, absolute compensation for all the things I wasn't good at. I was a, not a good athlete as a kid. My dad, who was an intellectual, used to say, I'm so sorry, Ronnie, I can't really show you how to throw a ball well. I don't know how to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And he, he was kind of okay with that, but it didn't work out well for me, mm. you know, so, so well in elementary school. And then, you know, starting to notice the way that, you know, trying to be smart or articulate or something, you know, is compensatory to that, you know, starts unraveling these whole threads of how we lean on certain qualities and abilities to compensate for the pain of not being so good at other things. And also how we develop, you know, so many little traumas throughout our lives of mm -hmm. the times that we failed, the times that we felt rejected, the times we felt not good enough. And because often they happen originally when we were young and it was too much to bear, we sort of turn our attention away from it or we double down on our strengths. As one of my patients put it so eloquently, yeah, when we bury feelings, we bury them alive, don't we? You know, <sighs> they don't really go away. So then a new situation comes up where we're a little bit threatened or we're not doing so well. And it 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 resonates with all those old feelings. And then we're really reactive and really having difficulty. So kind of the way, a way to work with this is to just be aware, okay, this whole business of trying to build myself up in my own eyes or in the eyes of others, fundamentally isn't gonna be a good pathway to well-being. The same way donuts aren't gonna do it for me in the long run. I'm not saying don't enjoy the donut. I'm not saying that if somebody tells you that you have a wonderful podcast and they've been deeply moved by your work, don't enjoy the good feeling of having mm -hmm. done something well. That's, that's part of the mix. But how can we not orient ourselves mostly toward hanging on to that and how can we as the source of my wellspring of my exactly. goodness in life okay. and as the as my identity of being a good human exactly and 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 i'll tell you there's a moment in the meeting the meeting with the students where mm. you know i just i just felt so sad about having blown it and there was a realization that this was absolutely right i had no idea how it was going to go forward in the group or how they'd react i mean you know there are other human beings they have their own needs and rights mm. and we'll see what happens but where it felt so right to not be defending me and not being concerned with that in that moment 
but to just be vulnerable to the ordinariness of being a human being who makes mistakes like other human beings make mistakes. Wow. <laughs> the actual work that it takes to be ordinary. <laughs> I can really Yeah, yeah. No, by the book on being the, the winner and the best kid in the on the block and all that, you know, might be easier. No, this is this is oh, this is man. a hard path, but but <laughs> I don't know. Uh, signal after signal tells me, you know, it's 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 ultimately a more fulfilling path for us all, and and it's better for us getting along with each other, and ultimately better for the planet. And yes, yeah, so, because I do want to, there was, I have to ask this question in this podcast, which is what, what do we say to that individual? Because I, I often, and, you know, let's speak to that part of me, even just, you know, not even listener tuning in. There is a part of me that is addicted to the strive. You know, it's, I can accomplish things and what more can I accomplish, you know, and, you know, how much more can we, you know, get this to resonate, you know, and this is a really important conversation. Even this conversation you and I are having, you know, there's a part of me that's like, I want to get this to as many people as possible so that it then alleviates their stress around striving. And it's like, that's a strive, bro. <laughs> you know? Well, it, So much has to do with the balance of motivations. And, and we can't be pure about this, but I, I was talking about this. I was having a conversation with um, my friend, uh, Rick Hansen, who's, who's a really smart, really deep, really mm. wise uh, psychologist. He wrote The Buddha's Brain and other things, and mm. uh, well, well known in America. And I say, oh, my book's coming out. And I'm, gosh, you know, I'm so torn because I really do believe this message can be useful to people. And mm if I could even help a few other people to avoid some of the lifelong suffering I've had barking up the wrong tree here, that, that would really feel meaningful. But, you know, when I think of, of marketing something that I've done, I think, well, chewing glass marketing, which would be more fun, you know, <laughs> but, you know getting out there and trying and say, please recognize me and please be interested in me. I hate it. I hate it in part because mm. I hate the crashes, right? I hate, you know, I hate the times where there's disappointment and I narcissistically mm. recalibrate, you know? Mm. Oh, no podcast interview in the last week, you know? I'm mm. now a fail, you, you know, like, mm. <laughs> the scale mm. keeps changing. So, so I think it's about, and, and what Rick said very wisely, is he said, he said, you know, you gotta, you know, stay focused on, on your values here. Stay focused on what matters. If you're reaching out to people to let the world know about this book, because mostly because it's never going to be pure, but mostly because you genuinely want to be helpful in the same way that as I just heard it when you were talking about the work that you're doing, mm. it sounded like genuinely wanting to be helpful, even though, yeah, there's probably going to be a self-esteem boost if more people sign up for the podcast than a few likes. Sign yeah, up absolutely. For the podcast. I, yeah. I, I mean, unless you're really advanced on this spiritual path, you <laughs> still know, working. It's <laughs> still working, right? Me too. So, um, so it's still going to happen. So how can we let it happen? How can we have the courage? to work with the disappointments because every one of those disappointments is going to be an opportunity to look at our delusions. Every time that I feel, you know, unrecognized professionally or like, oh, people didn't like my work or somebody didn't like a podcast interview I did or something like that. You know, if I really examine, so what's that pain? Oh, it's going to, it's going to connect to 
every girlfriend that ever broke up with me. It's going to connect with every time I ever failed a test, every time I was, you know, was, was hopeless on the athletic field. It's really a string of, of these injuries. And actually the current injury can be a doorway in to healing and working with the past injuries. And looking at it that way can give us the courage to do that as we mostly turn our attention to, can I do striving, but striving not for, not to aggrandize Ron, not to save Ron from feelings of inadequacy, but to try to accomplish something that's in line with our values. Part of me just wants to end the podcast. <laughs> We're nowhere near the end. That was huge. It's the aggrandizing of self that is uh, somewhat problematic. And I think, yeah, I think even just the way we idolize stars and influences and, you know, I think they're in, they're in we've circled back to the uh, the the cultural piece. Uh, but one of the, as you, as you were speaking, there was this thing that happened for me recently that just has reared its head and I wanted to share it um, in this space, if that's okay. I remember I was... Um, we were at a at a meditation retreat and i was um sharing a piece of music that i had written and uh uh yeah it's i've been on a, quite the journey to sort of bring my skills on the guitar along with the skills of the voice and long story short i shared this piece and uh a very a, a musician that i respect and has actually been my teacher in many ways um turned around and was like like really just gave me like the thumbs up like you know that was something <laughs> and like what that like inside i was just like what like this person is like i idolize this person in many ways when it comes to you know their uh relationship with music um and it was a, a lot for me to receive that um and i felt you know i was yeah buoyed um is a, is a, is a very <laughs> easy way to put it um for you know an extended period of time and uh, that the whole day, actually. The next, very next day, um, I went to do something on the guitar and uh, the same, the, the exact same individual was like, no. And I was like, what? And I was like, no. And I was like, oh. And the realizer, and you know, the, the benefits of these retreats, these meditation retreats you go away on is because, you know, because it's such like a microcosm of self-awareness that you're embodying for this extended period of time. I was hyper aware of the fact that, in fact, the day before letting that individual's, and this is, that individual's amazing. They're just walking their path. They're doing their thing. This is not about them, whether they did the right thing or the wrong thing. But for me, the realization that letting in that praise was also what opened the door to letting the kind of the the rejection sort of hurt yeah. so much absolutely you know and it was like whoa you know and if it was anybody else i and i already had put that and so you know that sort of construct of like self-esteem and my hierarchy and all that and so the piece that i wanted to sort of dovetail into from there is what do i do in that instance do i hold awareness for my propensities do I, yeah, do I hold awareness for them and just being aware that this is how I'm going to, like, you know, 
this is how society is structured. This is how, you know, the hierarchy is at play. This is how, you know, I place value in things and this is, and do I accept that to some level? Or is it about sort of, you know, not allowing the good in because then knowing that the, that sort of opens up the door for the negative a little bit more. So do I sort of try and find this muted sense of equanimity? Um, how am I, how are we navigating this yeah, sense of, Yeah. There, there are interesting approaches to this. I have um, um, a friend and colleague who's a couples therapist uh, named Terry Real here in the United States. And, and he treats people who have like big narcissism problems. And he teaches them to actually like yank down the bully when it's going up, right? <laughs> exactly what you say. Like you feel like, like actually yank it down. And yeah. when you feel the anchor going, actually yank it up. So that's yeah. one strategy. It's not what, draw, what I'm most drawn toward. I think more... Mm you know, out of my mindfulness practice, I think I'm a little bit more drawn toward the strategy of holding it in open awareness that you were describing and mm. to just notice, oh my gosh, and to see if we can also allow in a little bit of the cosmic chuckle that gets it. <laughs> oh my God, you know, is this really, you know, is this really who this organism is that, you know, <laughs> this person says we're wonderful and, and we're buoyed. And it's really, I mean, one of the things I explore in the book and, and it is really interesting is just to feel what this is like viscerally in the body. You were, you were showing us, right. Mm. That, and buoyed as a word, right. Chest comes up head is higher, we become taller, you know, this is this is a full psychophysiological experience of, yeah, I've got it. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, you know, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on the upswing here with a, uh, a self-esteem boost. And then when the opposite comes, oh my God, you know, if we were a dog, our tail would be between our legs. We feel the whole body collapses, the pit of the stomach, the whole thing. I mean, this is it. to be a mammal aware of what this is like is really intense because yeah. this stuff is really intense and it's happening all the time. Sometimes not at the, you know, the magnitude is increased when mm. we're interacting with someone that we value highly, right? Uh, you know, th this would be less intense if somebody you know, who you never knew, you know, bumped into you in the street and said, you jerk or something, watch where you're going, right? It mm. wouldn't have the same, uh, same impact. Um, but we start to see all the variables and holding it in awareness, we start to see, oh, look how unstable this is. Mm. Look at how what goes up goes down, what goes down goes up. And I think bit by bit, I think it's like mindfully eating a donut. If we mm. eat donuts mindfully, we kind of get it after a little while that mm, more than a little, Ew. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? It's, it's not so good. And I think when we're really mindful about this stuff, we realize more than a bit of the fluctuation, it, it's not actually so sustainable. Mm. And then I think it, I think naturally we become a bit more equanimous. I say a bit because this stuff's not going away the same way the donut interest isn't going away, or I don't think it's going away. Um, mm. I have, I have a, a good friend who's a... Uh, 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 both a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, and a Zen priest. And, you know, he refers to some of the stories of enlightenment in the Zen tradition mm. as enlightenment pornography. <laughs> like like these airbrush stories of, what <laughs> of, of breaking through. You know, yeah. this clear mirror mind. Yeah, I, I, I know what moments of that are like, but sustained out there in the world, outside of being on retreat? Mm, mm. Not in this lifetime, not yet. So... Mm. 
maybe, but also maybe he's right that it's enlightenment porn. So, so, so I don't think it's about holding ourselves up to some standard of expect of expecting equanimity or liberation. Or I, I think most of that winds up being a spiritual bypass. Uh, you know, mm. I, I think it's really about holding it in awareness. And what I have found since I started writing the book, I'll tell you a little. Um, uh, interchange that happened um i kept being late because i kept wanting to research it more and read more things because i got so fascinated by by this topic and so engrossed in it and at one point i wrote to my editor and i said i, I was already like a year and a half past deadline i said i had some good news and some bad news and she was very tolerant i said um, the good news is attending to this really is helpful you know because since i started writing this book i'm so conscious of this in myself and in others and just holding it in awareness like that is loosening it It, it's less intense i'm not believing in these stories as much as i used to uh the bad news is um i'm going to send back the advance who needs to finish another book if i'm And and she, even though she knows my sense of humor, she didn't know I was kidding. I was mostly kidding, mostly kidding, right? And she said, "No, no, I think this is a worthy enterprise. Let's talk," you know. And I do think it's a worthy enterprise. But so this is just to speak to the the holding it in awareness that you're that you're mentioning it, mm-hmm. just being aware of this. And one of the things that I try to do in the book is really show how many different domains of our life this operates in and mm-hmm. in how many different areas, you know, from from parenting to what we purchase to the foods we eat to where and how we travel to, you know, what we wear. Mm-hmm. There are so many, so many ways in which these, these uh, concerns with how am I going to feel about myself seem to um uh seem to infuse uh what we're doing and the more we see it the the freer we become and i think i was going to try and allude to like put together a question that was striking towards what i don't want to use the word evangelize but what are the benefits that we're evangelizing here of letting go of all of that and i think you just touched on it there it's this sense of freedom for me tuning into what I felt you were speaking to for me was this, this deeper sense of peace and acceptance. Yeah. Um, and I find it interesting because similar to how you described retreat, like I, I have moments where everything is just perfect and there is no need to strive. And oftentimes the things that are created from that space are much more wholesome and much more aligned to my yeah. integrity and they actually end up having a greater sense of uh, impact as yeah. well, um, funnily enough, in the world. Um, whereas when I'm trying to create something because it's what I think may benefit someone else rather than just from my heart goes, this has helped me, let me share it with you. There's a very, there's a distinct uh energetic difference between the two that I've come to realize over time to the point where I've learned to surrender that more and more often, but I still fall in the trap of actually this will help this person. Let me help them with that. Um, Rather than this has helped me. I wonder if this will help you Um, as a coach. That's been very, very, um, yeah. Learning the discernment between the two has been very practical for me in terms of the benefits that it's helped others with as well. Um, But yeah, the, the sense of peace and freedom, I think. Yeah. And and a, and and a third thing that I that we haven't yet talked about much, and I, I know we're nearing the end of time, 
our time, but the um, sense of connection to mm. others. Because one of the things that what you were just talking about, that, sh that sh energetic shift is um, it, it really is about celebrating our common humanity, right? This isn't, hey, I'm a coach, I'm a teacher, I'm, you know, whatever, and let me let me offer my brilliance to you. It's mm. like, oh, wow, we're in this together. You know, let's kind of talk really with each other, maybe even hold hands and discuss, you know, how hard it is to be a human being mm. and, and what's working for you, what's not working for you, what's working for me, what's not working for me. And, you know, that sense of connection that happens when we're talking with, let's just say a friend, where it's a friend we can trust, they're not into posturing much. And it's very interesting how contagious this is. You know, when you're with somebody who's kind of concerned with proving themselves, well, that energizes those juices in us, right? Then mm, we're we start mirroring that. I, I, yes. We mirroring, yeah, we start mirroring it because this is a basic instinct and it can be roused, you know, mm. easily in us. Um, but when we're someone who's not mostly on that channel and we're not mostly on that channel and we're really sharing honestly what it's like to be ordinary, our whole sense of self shifts. And this is um, this is actually a step toward what is often seen as non-self or transcending ego or, or transpersonal experience, because we shift subtly from being a me and a you to feeling like a we. At least I've mm. noticed this at moments during our conversation here together, right? When we're both, we're both resonating about something and the thing that we're resonating about is really something that's about celebrating our our shared vulnerability as humans, mm. celebrating our shared difficulty as humans. And when we do that and we become a we, our whole sense of self is different. It's not about me, Ron, it's about us. And, and that then lets us connect to other people. Also, you know, one of the chapters in the book, a phrase that has, it's resonated for a lot of people, it continues to resonate to me, what if we went through the world trying to make a connection rather than an impression? How would that feel in each moment? And it's it's not a bad guide, guideline to have in mm. almost all of our interactions. And it just shifts them a little bit to how do I connect more rather than prove myself more? Mm. I love that, the discernment between connection and impression. <laughs> Yeah, and it's you know it's uh, yeah, and I think even if you dial back the word impression to impress versus connect, um, you know, and just dialing into what we're doing in that space versus you know what am I trying to become to impress someone else, and again conflating some version of self um, that is not the authentic version of self. Why is connection so important, Ron? Ah, uh, because we're social beings. Mm -hmm. uh, the the same friend who's the Zen priest and the and the psychiatrist, mm -hmm. um, his name's Bob Waldinger, and uh, he also runs the Harvard Study for Adult Development, and this is the longest standing longitudinal study on well being. It started mm -hmm. in 1938 with some 700 men. It's because Harvard undergraduates were all male back in the mm -hmm. 1930s, and it followed this group from the 30s to today. And there, last I checked, there were about 60 of them who were still alive. Mm. And early on, you know, they were checking blood pressure and height and weight, and they were asking them a little bit about how they were doing in their lives. But they got increasingly sophisticated over the decades and would start interviewing um, uh, their wives or partners and their kids. 
and mm. they would start doing, you know, lipid profiles and C-reactive protein and all sorts of, you know, inflammation of markers, all this stuff. Um, mm. And they would do complex psychological testing. And, you know, Bob, he has a TED talk out about this, says, you know, we're still doing the study, but basically the jury's in. We know what's most important for well-being and both physical and psychological. And what's most important is the quality of our relationships. And if we feel like we're connected to other human beings in the world, we tend to thrive. If we don't, we tend not to thrive. And I'm not saying you can't get cancer because of a genetic thing or heart disease, you know, mm -hmm. it's complicated. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the overarching big variable, it's that. And what I find deeply reassuring, because I come from a um, New York Jewish background where mm -hmm. one of the features of the culture is we argue a lot about stuff. <laughs> and, and you don't have to be always harmonious, right? You don't have, you, you know, you might bicker sometimes, you might disagree, but the critical variable is feeling like you can trust the other person, like, mm. like they actually care about you. And if push came to shove, they would try to help. They would try to be there for you. And when we feel in community with one person, with a larger group of people, when we feel that, that sense of connection, we do better as human beings. And interestingly, the whole positive psychology field, I remember um, being with Chris Peterson once, he was one of the founders of the whole movement toward studying happiness scientifically. And he sadly died an early death of cancer, but shortly before he died, he said, we know the answer now, it's about other people. Mm. It's about, connecting to other people. So, you know, these disparate lines of, of investigation come to the, you know, come to the same thing. And, and uh, that's why this is important. We're, we're that's what we, we evolved as, as, as social beings, we need to be able to connect safely with one another to thrive. And um, so interestingly, there's a, um, uh, a kind of bi-directional relationship between connection, interpersonal connection, and the self-esteem preoccupation stuff. Because when we're trying to aggrandize ourselves, we don't connect so well to people, right? It's interesting that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, nobody yeah. likes somebody who's like always trying to prove themselves, right? Yeah. I mean, they may they may like them like, oh, won't you like me? In other words, mm -hmm. they may become a sycophant or a follower or something mm -hmm. and hope for a crumb, but they don't really connect mm -hmm. to somebody like that. So actually if we can be more at home with our ordinariness we can connect more fully to other people and conversely when we connect to other people we don't need the self-esteem stuff we don't need to prove ourselves because we already feel loved and connected it's like ah, oh, yeah no yeah no i'm no good at that but because okay you know we're we're held in love and and connection so there you know these two really go hand in hand with one another yeah, I find it um, really profound because as you're sharing that, I'm, I'm drawn back to um, Tony Robbins's. Uh, he he did a, he's done a lot of work in his life, but one of the pieces that I feel like he pioneered for him, like in this self improvement space, was the conversation around. He believes we have six human needs, and everybody has a different interpretation. I found over time about what we need and what we want, um, but his six are this need for. Uh, certainty and uncertainty. So there's a healthy amount of certainty that we need, but if everything was completely certain, you'd be going insane. You need a healthy amount of, you know, 
like surprise <laughs> in life as well for things to go slightly different. So the spice of life is there. But if everything was completely uncertain, you know, then how do you like navigate your way through chaos? You need a healthy amount of order, right? So that order in chaos. Um, and then the next two, he talks about ah connection and significance, right? And he talks about how again, you know, there is a bit of a like at first sight there isn't a dipole between the two, but actually they are polarities to some degree, which is what you're articulating here as well. Um, I'll just round it off by saying that the last two needs he describes are growth and contribution. He calls them more spiritual needs. Um, and he tries to orient people towards those needs and sort of working their way out from the other four needs. But I think the the connection versus significance piece is 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 at like obviously at this juncture in the conversation, having spent almost an hour talking about this, it becomes quite apparent. But I think when you start, and even if you just rewind and take a pause and go, okay, like take a moment to think about where we started this conversation. Oftentimes, one of the reasons why we're driving towards significant driving to stand out is so that we will attract someone to us. Yeah. Oh, totally. You know, and it's and it's so counterintuitive. I know. It's like it's, it's, it's my so ordinariness I mean, that actually connects me back in, not my extraordinariness. Yeah, I mean the number the number of you know patients or clients I've seen over the years who were so downtrodden, feeling nobody's ever going to love me. I'm not extraordinary. You know, I don't have any great talent and that's gotten so much worse. It's gotten to nobody's going to love me because I don't have a perfect body or I'm not an inf internet influencer or I'm not, you know, I don't have mm. followers. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's just gotten to a level where, um, where if you're, where you think that you have to be extraordinary in order to be lovable. And the irony is exactly what you're saying when we can really connect as ordinary human beings, there's deep love and there's deep trust and we don't have to be special at all. We can be completely, um, you know, uh, filled with all sorts of, of difficulties and flaws and confusions. You, you know, it's so interesting, you know, having been a psychotherapist for decades, <laughs> I've had a, an observation that a lot of people come to therapy hoping that they'll get a whole new personality. You know, the, that, the fantasy is, oh, I won't have to be Ron anymore. That yes, it's, I'm so tired of that anxious at four in the morning, worrying about this or that. You know, mm. I really want to be like that other person, right? Mm. And when therapy goes well, and this is not short-term therapy, longer-term therapy, but when longer-term therapy goes well, the person is very much like they were at the beginning, except they're now friends with that person. They're no longer judging it. They're no longer thinking it's got to be different. They're actually realizing this way that this particular organism evolved is just fine. And, and you know, Ram Dass, who uh, many people know, started mm -hmm. out actually as a Harvard psychologist, as Richard Alpert and yeah. got fired for his LSD experiments, uh, actually psilocybin <laughs> experiments uh, with Tim Leary. But putting that aside for a moment is interesting story. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he uses this metaphor. He says, you know, when we go to the woods, and we look at the woods, some trees are tall and straight, some are bent where you can see because of, you know, phototropism, they grew around uh, mm. some kind of obstacle. Um, some trees are thin, some are thick, some have fallen over and are being decomposed by, by fungi. And when we look at it, it's all beautiful, right? Even the way the wood, you know, comes into you know, decomposes and looks mm. a little bit like wood looks in a fire, you know, when it's coming apart mm. uh, with, with the fungi. That's beautiful, right? The tall trees are beautiful. The bent trees are beautiful. 
as soon as we move out of the forest and we start interacting with people, oh, they're too fat. <laughs> oh, look at the way they're dressed. They're one of those types. They're, you, you know, the judgment yeah, machine. The beauty disappears and the judgments starts. ensue. And most of these judgments are designed so that we can feel better about ourselves, right? Mm. I'm not no good like that person. I'm good. If we're on the staying ahead stress, mm. stress pole, if we're on the other pole, it's like, oh, they're so beautiful and I'm not, you know, and we can go either way with it. But still, it's the comparative judgments that take over. And, and this is, you know, what, what the ordinariness is about is really finding a path that's not mostly about that but mostly about a very different form of connecting in the world. And I think at the heart of it, it's finding yourself to be enough. Yeah. 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 Ron. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation. It is um, timely to say the least. It's also really profound for me to be having this conversation with you as the father of a newborn and, you know, mm. really, deeply recognizing that there is what I say and then there is what I do. And, mm. you know, the behavior that I want to instill, you know, the behaviors that I want to embody because those are the behaviors that will be modeled by my son, you know, I'm, yeah, there are certain bodies of work <clears throat> which really, yeah, just are sinking in a whole layer deeper than previously that I've noticed now that I've become a father because they mean them much more. Mm. And, uh, yeah, this has definitely been one of them. So I really want to thank you for the work that you're doing in the world and, yeah, despite <laughs> wanting to chew on glass versus marketing. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. I, I, no, absolutely. Well, this doesn't feel like, you know, try, you know, trying to get you to invite me to join you would be the painful part. Joining <laughs> you is a sheer delight. Uh, and, and in part because of your insightful questions that so obviously come out of your own work and your own discoveries of what works and doesn't work. And, and, and I think virtually anybody who, who really tries to take an honest look at how their hearts and minds work comes to somewhat similar conclusions. Most of the world's wisdom traditions and religions have come to similar conclusions because certain strategies, while they come up again and again because they're hardwired, they don't work so well. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate your questions and really the your 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 own efforts to orient yourself in in a direction that's going to be good not only for you not only for your new child but for the world thank you so much for your blessings on behalf of myself in the inspired evolution audience we're wishing you all the best on the journey forward and i just want to say hey guys thanks for tuning in the link to the book is going to be in the show notes below um please do check it out it's uh yeah it's an opportunity to just sink into greater and greater levels of enoughness and your sense of being and navigating the world with greater levels of peace and freedom the extraordinary gift of being ordinary learning to heal your relationship with striving um yeah i'm excited for you guys to tune into that thanks again Ron. thank you Thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of The Inspired Evolution. Without you, The Inspired Evolution tribe, this podcast would not be what it is today. Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to The Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of The Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations 
and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.